Jenna's got the timer just in case. <laughs> All right. So we've come a long way in 10 weeks. We started this journey um, with the Israelites being tormented as slaves. But God rescued and redeemed them with his mighty right hand through blood and water, as we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, that being the blood of the Passover lamb and the parting of the Red Sea. Thus, God's people were brought from death to life by God's grace through faith in the blood as they stood still and watched God deliver them from the hand of their enemies. If any of that sounds familiar, it's because their story of deliverance echoes our story of deliverance, which we've been talking about, I feel like, on a weekly basis. We, too, have been brought from death to life, for we were dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to our sinful flesh, but through Christ... We have been freed, we have been born again by the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've been saved by grace through faith. And so we are thus a new creation in Christ and we are saved to serve our King just as the Israelites were saved to serve the Lord. Shay sent me a verse this week and is Habakkuk 3.8. If you just wanna jot that down, you don't have to look it up because. It'll take you a while to find Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk 3.8, just put H-A-B for short. And she sent it to me, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, that's not it. It's the NLT version um, that you sent me. And I wrote it down because uh, I really loved it. It says, was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Were you displeased with them? No, you were sending your chariots of salvation. I loved that because... He was, in a way, sending his, he was saving them. This is Israel's salvation story. But we know that the story did not just stop there. It goes on. So Israel embarks on a journey after they are saved from their slavery. And it's a journey really of sanctification that again echoes our journey of sanctification um, as freed, as freed to serve, um, serve the Lord. So God brings them to Mara, where they experience his perfect provision and power to turn the bitter water sweet. And we saw how that tree sweetened the water and um, was a great 3D picture for us of the gospel of the cross sweetening our lives as well. Then God led them further into the wilderness where he could daily provide for their needs through the manna that they might learn Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there was a purpose, a spiritual purpose behind that. Deuteronomy 8.3. Why? Because any person who can actually get it through their mind that this world will not satisfy, but God will satisfy me, they will be filled. They will be filled. And that is the goal. We need to learn that. And so the Lord gave them an opportunity through the manna to learn that lesson. So what do we see? We see so far that God has tested them in a couple of different ways. And he also tests us. We know that in the New Testament it talks about that. Um, and it's so that they would learn who he is. They could um, get to know him more. Same thing for us. The Lord tests us so we can know him more. And also so they could learn to rely on him more. Same thing for us. The Lord tests us, use different situations, so we'll grow in our faith and rely on him. But then we come to Exodus 17, and the story flips. And it's not 
God testing Israel anymore. Now it is Israel testing God. By refusing to trust God. They were testing God by refusing to trust God. Though God had given them more than enough reasons to trust him, they didn't. And in particular, they had already had ample reasons to trust him over the provision of water, but they weren't. And so we find them in Exodus 17, if you want to turn there, again, grumbling about water. They're thirsty. So we're going to read through the first seven verses of chapter 17. We need to remember that these stories are recorded in scripture to teach us things. So we're going to mine whatever this is supposed to teach us. And what I love about that is today, this is what Exodus 17, 1 through 7 is intended to teach us. Next week, God could use it in a completely different way to teach us something else. You know, I mean, scripture is consistent, but how he draws it out sometimes, love that. I love how scripture can teach us different things, um, different times in our lives based on what we're going through. So verse 1, chapter 17 says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So they did this in an orderly fashion. I think that's what we could gather from that. According to the commandment of the Lord, they didn't go until God told them to go. Then they went and they camped at Rephidim, however you say that, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Notice that it doesn't just say grumbling. Now they're quarreling. We're going to come back to that word in a little bit. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. They're demanding that they have water. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? There it is. Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? They are blaming him for premeditated murder. <laughs> Why did you bring us here to kill us and our children and our livestock? So it's not just them. Now it's like, and you want to kill off our kids and all of our animals. You just want to kill all of us. A little bit of exaggeration, I think. With thirst, they're going to die because of thirst. So Moses, verse 4, cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So there it says it again. They tested the Lord, and they tested him by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So I want to stop here for a second, and if you look on page 120, it might, uh, question 7 might help you with this. But what does it mean that Israel is testing God? I want to dive into that just a little bit. How are they testing God? What does that mean? Because I don't think we can really mine any truth from that until we kind of stop and think about, like, what, does, what was wrong with that? 
doubting. Yes, they're questioning. Well, they're questioning. <clears throat> they're just showing that they don't trust the Lord. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. Like a distrust. Yeah. Even after everything that he's done for them, he's proven time and time and time and time again yes. that he's with them. And it's not been that long since he did those things. It's not been that long since he parted the Red Sea or turned the Nile into blood or, you know, back into fresh water. Like, and he just gave them water, right? When they were at, at he sweetened the water when they were at Mara. Mm -hmm. So they've seen that God can provide water. Well, so you get the sense that, they, that they're demanding it of Moses, right? So maybe they're... Maybe they recognize that God could give it to them, but it's they're just doing it in a demanding way. It doesn't really seem what it, to me. It seems like they did think God could do it, but instead of like coming with an attitude of of gratitude and and asking for God to give them water, yes, they're like well, if you're God, you'll give us water. Yeah, like an expectant thing. Like, we deserve to have like, water. if you don't give us water, we're not going to believe in you. <laughs> right? <laughs> I actually wrote down that they were really asking, is there a, really a God? Yeah. Mm. I think a lot of them had just didn't even believe in him anymore. How much time would you mm. I mean, it's, the Red sea to it's been under two months. So, oh so they have the... From this time, yeah. we don't know exactly how long it's been. That how, we don't know how long God's been providing the manna at this point. Okay. He, he started providing the manna, I believe, about a month after they. they had that day yeah, he started providing the manna a month after they crossed over the Red Sea and came out of Egypt. So at this point, we don't know how long it's been exactly, okay. but it's. I think it's been under. You know, it's been under two months. Diana. Well, I was thinking about this. They had animals. Yeah. Why didn't they kill their animals and eat them? I wondered that too. I was like, why did they even need this manna? They had right livestock. Right. I I wonder. I did anyone else think of that? Mm -hmm. I had wondered that too. They had plenty of animals. Yeah. So and they actually probably came out of. I would. Well, maybe not. I guess they didn't have bread. They just really wanted bread. <laughs> They didn't have time for their bread to rise, and they had to leave Egypt too quickly. And there was no carb counting back. Then. There was no carb counting. <laughs> there was definitely no keto. Animals would have worked for me. That would have been fine. Maybe they were all vegetarians. Maybe they were all vegetarians. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, it is interesting how much they're complaining when maybe they could have just even fed themselves. You know, been happy, content with what God had already given them. Uh, so what would have been a better reaction for them? I mean, I think it kind of speaks for itself, but how should they have, when they came here and realized they were thirsty and didn't have any water? They could have prayed for water. They could have prayed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, they could have asked. But you know, I think when a person is so frustrated, they're going to show their anger before they, mm -hmm. they even think logically of what to do. And I think that's kind of the stage they were in. I agree. Well, and because look how frustrated they are. They, I mean, in verse 3, they blame Moses. You brought us here to kill us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I listened to a commentary on this, 
now he needed to get Egypt out of mm-hmm. his people. Because <laughs> they were still thinking it was better back there. Yes. And isn't that the way it is with us? Because in a sense, God brings us out of the world, and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to get the world out of us. Good. That's so good. On page 120, um, there's a paragraph there that I wrote. We test God inappropriately when we doubt God's person, provision, and promise, just as the Israelites did at Massa. However, faith-filled testing takes God at his word and trusts God for his will by claiming a promise without seeking to manipulate it. It begins with obedience and ends with a blessing. One of the reasons I bring that up, because we talked about testing when we studied Malachi, because the Lord said, test me and see if I don't provide for you. But that was a faith-filled kind of testing. See if I don't hold to my word. This is not that. This is doubting. This is rebellious. This is um, <laughs> anything but <laughs> faith-filled. It's all the opposite. And, but we do this. And uh, uh, let me just see if this rings a bell with any of you, when we blame God for not running the world the way we would like it to be run, we test him. I might be guilty of that last Tuesday. When we blame God for not running the world the way we think he should run it, we test him. When we grumble and complain because this is not the life I wanted, this is not the life I expected, we test him because we are doubting his provision and what he's given us. We're doubting his person to be faithful to us, and we're doubting his fulfillment of the promise, the good promises that he has already given us, and it really comes down to ingratitude. That's the bottom line, and I'm, it's funny how the Lord does this, but I'm in my Bible reading plan, I'm in Romans, and so yesterday I read Romans 121, and I thought, there it is right there. It says, for although they knew God, meaning the unrighteous or the ungodly, and we could even put the Israelites here, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or, here it is, give thanks to him. They didn't give thanks. That's what this comes down to. It's kind of scary that this is what it comes down to. It's so easy not to give thanks to the Lord, right? It's so easy to have an attitude of ingratitude. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in your homework, you read Psalm 95, 8 and 9. And the first thing that says is that their hearts, the Israelites, they tested God. Don't test, it basically says, don't test God like you did at Meribah or as you did at, at Massa in the wilderness. But it says there that their hearts were hard. They, Israelites had hard hearts. Pharaoh had a hard heart. Why did they have a hard heart? Because they refused to give thanks to God and recognize him as the Lord. That's how it starts. It starts with ingratitude. In this verse right here in Romans 121, for although they knew God, so there's some knowledge there, they just, they don't honor him or they give thanks to him. So we see that it starts with ingratitude, which will lead to a lack of worship. And God deserves all the worship. After that, then, but they became futile in their thinking. What does futile mean? This was an interesting verse to look up in all of the various translations. 
It's all different. They're all very different. If you have time tomorrow, just put Romans 121 in like Bible Gateway and look up all the different translations of this verse. I'll just list a few. For futile thinking, that's what, that's what the ESV says. Um, some of them said they were vain in their imaginations. They were godless. They were pointless reasonings. That's all they're thinking. So it started with ingratitude and followed by um, a lack of worship. This is what it led to. Futile thinking. Pointless reasoning. Another, another version said silly speculations. Another one actually said stupid speculations. I was like, oh, there's a few of those going around right now. <laughs> you know, like you look at sometimes you just think, what are people thinking? You know what it started with? Ingratitude. Isn't that crazy? Like such a little thing. It started with ingratitude. And then what happens after that? There's futile thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So then your heart is darkened. And then the next thing, your heart is hard. Before you know it, you, you have a hard heart. And hard hearts don't trust God. We don't want a hard heart. So it seems like a simple thing to um, like, oh, yes, I need to give thanks to the Lord. But it's a protection for us, I think, not to go down that road and end up with a hard heart. Because what happens when you end up with a hard heart? You see all these amazing things the Israelites did, and then you get to the edge of the promised land in a year's time, and you say, I'm not going in there, because you don't trust God. And then you mess up your life big time, and then you die in the wilderness. <laughs> you see how their life was written as an example for us, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. And in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll look at here in a minute, um, it, it's, it, they, it, Paul warns us, do not grumble. Don't have an attitude of ingratitude. It's so important. Now, um, I read this quote this week, and I thought it was really interesting. It said, grumbling puts God on trial and finds him guilty. Hmm. Grumbling puts God on trial. Why did you do that to me? Why didn't you give me this? Why can't I have that? It grumbling puts God on trial and finds him guilty. God, you failed to deliver the life that I want. I deserve better than this. Maybe we don't actually say those words, but do our actions say that? Does our attitude say that? Does our lack of hope say that? Does our lack of joy say that? I don't know. You know, it's just good to kind of stop, think through that a little bit. Now that um, Psalm 95, 8 and 9 that you looked up in your homework, I like the NIV version of that best. It, it says, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. And then here's the part I want to latch onto for a minute. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. They had seen it. They had been eyewitnesses of all that God had done. They tried me. They put God on trial. And they literally did. What's really interesting about this section in Exodus is how all the commentators agree. This scene is like a courtroom trial. So verse 2 says the people quarreled. Uses that word quarreled. We looked at that. That word is a legal term that actually means to bring a case or conduct a legal suit. So they're like bringing a case against God. They're putting him on trial. So picture a courtroom here, and we have the people on one side, 
and we have Moses on the other side, and then we have the rock, and God tells them to go before the rock, and where does God say he's going to be? Verse 6, where does God say he's going to be? Before the rock, or some of them might say on the rock. Same thing, before or on. He's, my version says on the rock. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So it's, it's this idea that God is up in the stand on the rock. <clears throat> and you have the people on one side, Moses on the other, and then the elders are like the jury. Okay. Um, and he says, take, take the elders, so let them see this. And then what does God tell Moses to do? We know strike before that. What's he tell him to do? Let's see, where are we? Take the, back up a little bit. Yeah, take walk, the. Walk in front of the people. Yep. Take your staff. Take. One you use when you the water in the Nile. Yes, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. So that detail's in there for a reason. This staff is going to be the staff of judgment. That staff was used over and over again to bring judgment on the Egyptians. And what Moses, through the Lord, is so cleverly doing here is pointing back to the, the judgment. It, this, it's the staff of judgment, the one that you struck the Nile. Take it in your hand and then go. And then the Lord says where he's going to be. I will stand before you there on the rock and you shall what? Strike it. Hit it. Strike the rock. But wait, isn't God on the rock? God's on the rock. And he just told him to strike the rock. So we have another 3D picture coming off the page at us. And 1 Corinthians 10, 4 helps us with this one a lot. If you guys look that up, who, who is the rock? It's Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 plainly tells us that the rock is Christ. And the rock was just, God just told Moses to strike the rock. So we know Israel's guilty. There's no doubt about that. They've got a bunch of whiny pants, a bunch of brats, right? There's no doubt they are guilty. And they deserve condemnation. And at the same time, we know God is innocent. He has been doing all these amazing things for them. And bringing all these guilty people out of Egypt when they don't deserve it. And giving them water and bread when they don't deserve it. So we've got guilty people, and we've got an innocent God. But God tells Moses to bring the rod of judgment down on the rock, where he alone is standing. Sorry, see the picture? It's an unbelievable picture of Christ, the cornerstone, the true rock, struck with the punishment that the Israelites and that we deserved while they watched, while the elders watched. Yes, that's the picture here. So we have these grumbling, complaining people, and then we have Christ struck for all of their grumbling. You see the gospel there so very clearly. This is those people that deserve to be struck. I mean, I'm still kind of mad at them this week after. 
after thinking through all their complaining, and yet I'm right there with them, right? And yet God told Moses to strike the rock with the, with the staff of judgment. And then what happens as a result of striking the rock? Water flows. Another great picture for us, water flows from Christ the rock to the people. The Holy Spirit, perhaps, living water like we've talked about, and he quenches their thirst. Jesus has told us, whoever comes to me will never be thirsty again. I will quench your thirst. Isn't that cool? Way cool. Way cool. Way cool. What a merciful, gracious, loving God we serve. That he told Moses to strike the rock. You guys, Jesus was not kidding when he told the, told the Pharisees that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about him. Because I feel like every single chapter, it's been bearing witness about him and the gospel. If you want to write down John 5.39, that's where I got that reference from. He tells the Pharisees that all the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about him. Now, this moment was so transformative for Moses. He actually sings about the rock um, at the latter end of his life. Write down Deuteronomy 32.4 and verse 18. I'll read it for you. He has a song here, and in 32.4, he says, The rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. See the perfect rock there? Just and upright is he. Love Moses' song here. And then verse 18, he says to the Israelites, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And I thought that was very fitting because we've been talking about how the Israelites, like this is like new life, new birth for them coming out. God gave them birth. And they were unmindful of the rock that bore them. So here's your principle for this section. This was like a teacher's dream. It was already split up for me in three perfect sections. <laughs> Don't test God. Trust God who struck the rock instead of us. Don't Test God, trust God, who struck the rock instead of us. Don't test God by doubting him, not believing him, but trust God, who struck the rock instead of us. You trust him on the good days. You trust him on the bad days. You trust him when things go right. You trust him when things go wrong. You trust him to provide. You trust him to be faithful. And you trust him in the battle. Because every day is a battle. Which is a perfect segue into the next section. Love it when that happens too. We're moving into verse 8. I love Jenna. She always laughs at me. It's great. I always wanted to be funny. <laughs> Verse 8. Then, after all of this, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So here comes Amalek, okay? We have talked about the Amalekites before. Um, so where did the Amalekites come from? Esau. Esau. Yep, they came from Esau. And you guys know where else we've 
studied or talked about when else we've talked about the Amalekites? Remember? Esther. Esther. Yes. Haman was a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. And Saul was supposed to kill off all the Amalekites and didn't. Remember that? Let King Agag live. And then we get Haman, the evil villain in the story of Esther. And so what really what this is doing is setting up for us this battle of, there's a larger picture here of good versus evil. So the story goes back to Jacob versus Esau, God's chosen versus God's not chosen people. And then we see it continue. And so let's read the rest of this section here. And then we'll talk about things. So verse nine, so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Ur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So its hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, you don't understand that this is kind of a bigger picture of good versus evil. That last verse sounds really harsh, mm -hmm. that the Lord is gonna have war on these people from generation to generation, what? But it's because it's developing that bigger picture for us. You re also read in your homework some extra information about what happened in this war. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18, gave us a little bit of insight into how the battle started. Does anyone remember what Deuteronomy 25 told us? How they attacked? Remember reading that? Yes, they attacked from behind. And so they got the people who were faint and weary, the people that were lagging behind. Maybe it was mothers with small little ones. I mean, that is just sickening, right? Like, you don't attack the faint and the weary. You attack the soldiers. <laughs> Leave the babies alone. <laughs> don't get those people. But as I thought about this, I thought, well, isn't that just like the devil, too? To just attack the weak and the elderly and the weary and the ones who are worn down and the ones who might be lagging in the back. So our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It does the same thing. You're going to attack where you're weak. So we get that picture. So... Why do God's people all of a sudden find themselves in a battle just after they exited Egypt? It's not been that long. We've already been talking about how it's probably less than two months. Well, they find themselves in a battle because the moment we step into the light and say yes to following Jesus, we step into a battle. This life is a battle. We are battling the flesh. Romans 7 tells us that our, our flesh wages war on our spirit. So we are in a battle against the flesh, and we are a battle against the devil and his demons. Ephesians 6, 12, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. So we are definitely in a 
fight. And sometimes it feels more like a fight than other days, a very real fight. But there's some comfort in our battle, and that's what we see, I think, in this story, is the comfort that we can take away from this. So first of all, let's talk about Moses. Where's Moses? He is, he's up on the hill. Yep, he's up on the hill. And what's, what's he doing? Arms out. He's got his arms out. Yes. So he's got the staff of God in his hand again. So again, we see it when his staff is up, it's the staff of judgment on the Amalekites because then the Israelites are winning. So he's using the staff of judgment. Um, he's got his arms up in the air. Now, some commentators point to this um, as a picture of prayer. And I actually have taught it that way before because I do agree we will not win the battle apart from prayer. But there was a 3D picture that popped out here at me as I read and studied that I had never seen before. So think about Moses' position. He's up on top of a hill with his arms stretched wide to bring victory, Jesus, Mm -hmm. to his people. I think that's the bigger picture here, is Moses, who is... Well, Jesus is the better, more perfect Moses, right? He's the true Moses. But he often um, pictures Christ in many ways as being Israel's mediator, okay? Up on a hill with his arms stretched wide. And that is how the people were able to have victory, with Moses' arms stretched wide. And Moses needed some help. Christ needed no help. He bore that responsibility on his own Now, the difference is Moses spread his arms to dispense judgment. He was dispensing judgment on Malachites, whereas Jesus spread his arms to receive the judgment. That's the difference there. So Moses was dispensing it, and Jesus was receiving that judgment. But do you see that picture of Christ up on the hill, arms spread wide, interceding for his people in order for them to have the victory? That is why we have victory. What's that? Yeah. Now this. Oh, go ahead. I was thinking when I was reading about um, when um, Moses could not keep his arms up, and they put the rock under there, mm. and I thought, but wait, we just read that the rock was Jesus. So I was thinking, well, it's kind of like Jesus kind of helping him. I love that. Keep those arms up because the rock was Jesus. Probably it was a different rock, but yeah, it was still the analogy of it. Absolutely. I love that. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts come to mind? Share when those things pop in your mind, because I think that's the Holy Spirit working in your heart as you're listening. I think it's a good example, too, of just Moses needed Aaron and her mm-hmm. as support. So just, you know, when you're fighting your battle, you can't do it alone. You, can't. you need the rock. Yes. And you need your friends yes. alongside you to help you battle. We get so embarrassed to share our battles, but that's how the way the devil wants you to be embarrassed so that you won't talk to anybody. But it is, it's don't battle it alone. Like if you need sisters in Christ, I mean, this is a great group right here. If you can't share with this many, pick one or two. You can share with somebody and have them come alongside you. Absolutely, me. For sure. Now, the second encouragement I think I see here is we have Moses up on the hill with his arms spread, but we have Joshua down below fighting. 
Joshua's name means God saves. And so it's just a, a beautiful picture of Joshua down there fighting alongside his people. It gives us this image of Christ also fighting alongside us. So Christ not only intercedes for us on a hill called Calvary, but he fights alongside us even now. He's interceding for us now from the throne room of heaven. So he's, he is fighting with us. Now, here's something that I absolutely love. At the Red Sea, and people love to, I think maybe Rhonda mentioned this too, but people love to take the verse of stand firm, you know, be still and stand firm, maybe a little bit out of context. We love, some of us might love the idea of, okay, I'll just stand still and not do anything. That sounds great. <laughs> I don't want to do anything anyway. You know, like, we like that idea. But why did God tell them to stand still well, he, and watch the salvation of the Lord? At that point, it was their salvation. It was their redemption. They could do nothing to help. We can't help with our salvation. And so the Lord told them to stand still and let them, let him do it. But now it's a little bit different. You've been saved and now you need to partake in the battle. There's no, there's no more standing still anymore. That was for your salvation. Now this is for your sanctification and you've got to put your armor on. You've got to take part in the battle. Um, or you're going to get crushed if you don't partake in the battle. Does that make sense? Yeah. We can do nothing to help with our redemption, but we are absolutely participants in the battle that starts raging after that. So every single day, we wake up to an enemy that is very much real and very much hates you, absolutely hates you, and whose singular desire is to destroy you. This enemy would love nothing more than to destroy your marriage, destroy your home, destroy your hope in God, destroy your faith, destroy your church, destroy your family. He would just love to shred it to pieces. That's the kind of enemy that we actually serve. I think we underestimate that a lot. Now, how do we successfully navigate that? If that's our reality, how do we successfully navigate that battle that we're facing every single day? What was it? Put on your armor. Put on your armor. Go to Joshua 1. I think you guys are going to love this. Turn to Joshua 1. And you are exactly right, Shay. we got to put on our armor. This is so familiar to you guys. But I think putting this all together is going to help. Joshua 1. So this, very, this is after Moses' death, verse 1, the servant of the Lord. Um, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' assistant. Remember, at the end of the text we just read, he says, Say this in the ears of Joshua, that the Lord will wipe out the name of the Amalekites. Why was it so important for Joshua to hear that? It's because Joshua was going to be the next leader. And also, interestingly enough, if you jump ahead and you look at when the Israelites reached the edge of the promised land, one reason they didn't want to go into the promised land is because they didn't want to fight, face the Amalekites again. The Amalekites are named in that passage as one of the vicious people that they don't want to face. They'd already defeated them and seen God help them defeat them, but they had no faith, no faith at all. That's why the Lord said, recite this in Joshua's ears. Well, Joshua remembered what God had said, but nobody else said. But Joshua becomes the next leader to lead God's people into the promised land. 
And God says this to him. Um, let's see. Moses, my servant is dead. Verse 2. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Now, skip down to verse 7. Only be strong. And very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So they are about to go in to the promised land. They're going to fight a bunch of different nations, some of them very large people, very scary, vicious people. And what is God's battle plan? His word. That's right. Be strong and courageous and <laughs> meditate on his word. Meditate on my word. This is saying God's battle plan for his people is his word. That's his battle plan. That's how we fight back. He, he didn't lay out for Joshua. I mean, yeah, later, yeah, he gives him instructions. Okay, here's how we're going to fight against Jericho. Okay, here's how we're going to fight. That's like, minute, that's like details that come later. This is the real battle. And he's like, you fight it by meditating on my word day and night. You do not let it depart from your mouth. And then you will be successful. This is his battle plan. This is our battle plan. God's battle plan for his people is his word. That's your second principle. God's battle plan for his people is his word. It was then and it still is today. God's battle plan for his people is his word. What's the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6, 17? The Bible, the word. That is the sword of the spirit. How did Jesus fight the devil? The word. He fought with the word. This is no different for us today. Ephesians 6 also tells us that the, the shield by which we extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy is our shield of faith. You extinguish those flaming darts with your shield of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the word. And it all comes back. This is God's battle plan for his people. He's not worried about all the other details. This is what he's worried about. Not worried. God's not worried. This is where he wants us. <laughs> right here. This is where we fight back. Now look, I want you to jump back to Ephesians, or not Ephesians, Exodus with me. Okay, actually we already talked about that. We already talked about why. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Recite this to Joshua so that he can have my word as a shield of faith so that he can go in and defeat the nations in the promised land. Recite it in the ears of Joshua. My word is what Joshua needed to remember. That was going to be his shield of faith. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Who is the devil powerless against? It just said he'll flee from you. He is powerless against those who submit to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God and he will flee from you. Those who are submitted to God and his word, Satan's powerless against that. He cannot fight against this. But in contrast, who is the devil going to seek out? Those who are not? Yeah, submitted to God. Those who do not know his word. Those who do not have a shield of faith to distinguish those flaming darts. Those who don't put it on. That's who he's going to go, the weak. The ones that are lagging behind. The ones at the back, just like the Amalekites. Interesting, isn't it? Kind of seeing all that picture come together. I think that's why that story's in there. Because we've got to talk about the fact that we are in a battle. We are in a very raging, very big battle. And we've got to fight. We've got to fight. With the, we've got to know how to fight properly. I say that. I don't mean screaming and yelling matches. We've got to fight the right enemy in the right way, which is the spiritual forces of evil, the devil, the enemy, my flesh, with God's word. With the spirit, or with the sword of the spirit. Okay, now we have one more section that we're going to talk about this semester, and I think it's going to put a great big bow on all of it and kind of bring it all together. Okay, it's a great way to kind of wrap things up. Exodus 18 may not be in chronological order, so we have Jethro, Moses' father in law, coming to meet him after this takes place. And the people now, I believe, are at Mount Sinai. They have made it to Mount Sinai. This is God's goal for them. This was God's promise to Abraham. Remember, he told him in chapter 3, uh, go and get the people, and you're going to bring them right back here, and you're going to worship me. And here they are. They've made it back to Mount Sinai, where the Lord first appeared to Moses. So his father-in-law brings to him his wife, Zipporah, and his two sons. And this may have happened later on, but Moses, through the Holy Spirit, stuck it here because it really is a great bridge between the first half of Exodus and the second half of Exodus. It kind of sets us up for the law. So that's why I think Moses put this story here. Now, let's see. Okay, let's look at verse 1. 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. We don't know why. We don't know when that happened. Maybe it was the circumcision incident. Maybe they just need to part ways. Maybe he was trying to protect her. I mean, he didn't know how Pharaoh was going to react to any of this. So maybe he just decided it wasn't safe for them to be around. Um, now, some commentators think that Moses maybe didn't even know that he had a second son. Like, that was a surprise. We don't know. We don't know when this other son was born. This is the first time that we're hearing about the other son in this part of Exodus. But I, I think that we, we can't speculate those things. So the important thing is that Jethro is coming. Jethro is the main uh, character besides Moses in this section. Zipporah is kind of a, a side note that he's being reunited with his family. Jethro comes and uh, let's see, jump down to 
Verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because of this affair. They dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders, there's the elders again, of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now I can't help but wonder if they're eating manna. Isn't that kind of cool to think about them eating, like fellowshipping in God's presence and eating manna? I don't know. I don't know if that's what they're eating or not. <clears throat> it would make sense. Okay, so <clears throat> in verse 8, Moses tells Jethro all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel and all the hardships that they had been through and how the Lord had delivered them. In essence, he shares their salvation story. Okay, let's just say this, he shares the gospel. He shares the good news that there is a God that redeems. Or we could say that he shared his testimony. And he filled, and he's also fulfilling God's hope for Israel to carry his great name to the Gentiles. That's, he wanted them to be, we'll look at this right when we start off next semester. He wants Israel to be a nation of priests that carries his name to all of the other nations. And so Jethro, in this chapter, represents those other nations. He's a Gentile. He is not a Jew. And he comes, and he hears the, the salvation story. He hears the gospel. Let's just call it the gospel. He hears all that has happened, and he believes. And he declares in verse 11, Now I know. Now I know. This goes right back to where we started. The Lord did all of this so that they might know, so that we might know that he is the true God, so that he saves, that he redeems. And Jethro says, now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. He believes and he confesses with his mouth that God is the Lord. That sounds a lot to me like Romans 10, 9, and 10. Doesn't that sound, you see him there? As a Gentile, confessing and believing in the one true God? In my opinion, this right here is the true climax. All these things took place so that we might know, so the Gentiles might know, so that the nations could come together and celebrate. This is our God. This is the Lord, the true God. God of Israel. So in conclusion of this portion of our study, I want to come full circle then back to our first session and I want to ask you this question. Do you know more? Do you know God more now than you did a couple months ago? Do you know him more? We talked that very first night. We talked about how God wants to know us. He wants to know us. Do you know God more than you did just a couple of months ago? I hope so.
I hope the scriptures have have been, you know, the Lord has talked to you uh, through studying his word. Your last principle then is this. The scriptures are written so we can know and trust God. That's why they're here. The scriptures are written so we can know and trust God. The scriptures are written so we can know and trust God. We don't have the privilege of being eyewitnesses like the Israelites were. They got to witness all these amazing things that the Lord did. But Jethro did not have that. He did not get to be an eyewitness. He heard and believed. And so do we. We hear and then believe. Jesus said to Thomas after his resurrection, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20, 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they've believed. You guys, may it not be lost on us that at the conclusion of Israel's salvation story is a Gentile confessing the one true God as Lord. That put a nice bow on things. At the end of Israel's salvation story is a Gentile confessing the one true God as Lord and then eating in fellowship with the Jews. And it says eating bread in God's presence. Cool, right? Jews and Gentiles eating, feasting in God's presence. Does that remind you of maybe a future feast that might be coming? We're all going to sit in God's presence, all the nations together. Pretty cool. Now, I also think this is a great picture of the church also. Not just in the sense of Jew and Gentile together, but when you look at the second half of this chapter, uh, Jethro gives Moses some pretty amazing advice, actually. I love verse 13. I, think, I just connect with this, but you guys probably will too. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. <laughs> just sit in that for a second. Like, every mother in here is yeah. feeling that one, right? <laughs> okay, let's read it again with that in mind. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Like, do you not feel like that is your life sometimes? <laughs> the people are just standing around me constantly. Go away! But this is Moses with millions of people trying to do it all on his own. And Jethro saw that and says to him, when Moses' father-in-law, verse 14, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? I love it. I love it. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses is like, well, because they come to inquire of God. Like, I have to help. And his father-in-law says, you need to get people to help you. You need to get God-fearing men who are trustworthy. Verse 21, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. 
so it'll be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. This is some fantastic advice from mm -hmm. his father-in-law. And I see it as a picture of the church, really, of, of our pastors being able to, Mike, mm -hmm. who did an amazing job teaching that sermon on Sunday, yesterday, that's a very difficult passage, he did so good, but enabling him to have the time to do that, and that's why we have deacons that take care of other matters, that's why we have trustees that take care of other matters, that's why we have um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so that we can all serve, and we can all endure, and we can all help each other. You kind of see that picture kind of build out there here at the end of chapter 18, and it's just really neat because this all gets put in place, and then it's time for the law because yeah. now there is a structure in place to help the people know whether or not they're following the law. So these, the law really, the, when we get into the laws that we're going to read about in chapters 21, 22, and 23, we're going to look at its, its judgments. Like it's going to help these judges. It's going to help the people decide cases. It's going to help them know how to live, how not to live, right? And so these people that Moses are appointing here, these God-fearing men, are going to have the law to use as a judge to help them. As like a, what do you call that? Like the plumb line. <laughs> this is how you're supposed to live, okay? <laughs> so you see that all get put into place, which is why it's here and not after the law is given. I mean, like I said, this might be out of chronological order, but Moses places it here because it's a great transition now for the law to happen. So, but I just thought it was a great vision of the church, of, of sharing that load together and how the Lord set that up. It's also just, just looking at Moses personally, um, kudos to Moses for being willing to take Jethro's advice, right? Yeah. I think that's the personal takeaway from us from this. Sometimes it's, it's, well, it's not easy to hear that you're not doing things the right way. You know, and basically that's what Jethro is. You can't be doing this. You're not doing things the best way. And we don't like hearing that sometimes. But Moses was willing to listen. And it was a good thing for him to listen. Because <clears throat> he, he felt like he, wanted, he just wanted to do all of it by himself. I feel like not wanted to, but felt responsible yeah. for all of these people. Mm-hmm. So... You needed that. You needed that advice. Absolutely. Because you can't do all this on your own. Mm -hmm. This is way too much you can't. responsibility. And as a leader, the leader has to learn to trust mm -hmm. other people. Delegate. Delegate. Mm -hmm. Yes. I've worked for a lot of presidents, vice presidents, big cheeses all over the place. And a sign of a good leader is one who can delegate. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a perfect capstone to the reluctant leader Moses was in the beginning, yes. to the confident leader he is now, so confident that he can delegate. That's a great He's point. He's become a great leader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, he, he did not want to, I don't want to go, send someone else. Right. Yeah, please send someone else. Yeah. And now he's standing around morning and evening and all the people and coming to him and, and now he's got to learn to delegate. Mm -hmm. 